Yes, people are following you. People are following those people. And you see that? They follow me. The KGB is a circle of accountability, nothing more. Hello and welcome to the Chernobyl podcast, the podcast about the Chernobyl miniseries on HBO. I am Peter Sagal and I am here with Craig Mazin, the show's creator and producer and writer. Hello again, Craig. Hello, Peter. This is the third episode of the Chernobyl podcast. We're talking, of course, about episode three of the Chernobyl miniseries, which is titled Open Wide, O Earth. We pick up where we left off on episode two, down in the depths, in the dark, underneath the reactor with the three men who were colloquially known in stories of Chernobyl as the divers. The divers, even though they weren't really divers, they were engineers, but they knew the subterranean area of the complex. Right. When the lights go out, they're able to kind of just grab pipes that they knew there were certain pipes that would lead them to the room where they could open up the sluice gate. Now, for us, we had an interesting problem <laughs> because if the lights go out, yes, uh, it becomes a radio play at that point with not What's a lot of talking. What's wrong with that, Craig? <laughs> yeah, well, I know. All right. I know. I, radio play, not, I understand. not game show. <laughs> I understand. I defend my media. <laughs> of but, course, of but, course. But what I believe you have, them, they use, I forget what you call them, but these hand-generated... Yeah, I think they're called crank. dynamo. Um, yeah. So it's like a little hand crank thing that you have probably seen in like an Army-Navy surplus store. And, and we found the models that were used in the Soviet Union at the time. And they have this wonderful noise. So we really tried to give you a sense of just putting you in a a place, you know, I mean, obviously some of these details we're guessing on or inventing, but the goal there is to make you feel what it must have felt like down there. Right. The series director, Johan Rank, thought about that aspect a lot during his work. It, It was a very, very difficult thing to do. We shot that yesterday. It was literally, I never went to film school or anything like that, but I felt like this was definitely a film school moment to shoot three people who were all looking identical uh, because they're wearing the same outfits. You can't see their faces because they're wearing face, you know, goggles and gas masks and shit. You, do, you can't hardly even see their eyes. Um, walking around in pitch dark blackness and still make it feel, we, we have to understand that they're scared, we have to understand that they're lost, we have to understand, so how do you do that without going into full pantomime, you know? And it was tricky, it was very frustrating, I had a really hard time because I, I, could, I could see what they were doing and at the same time I didn't want them to go bigger, like, no, no, let's not do that, you know, you, you just want them to keep it really small and subdued, but it was tricky. Did they actually complete their mission in the dark? That's my understanding, they completed their mission in the dark, And once it was open, you know, then they were theoretically done with their job and can just head back out. Yeah. And that's essentially what happened. So the crisis is averted by these three guys. Yeah. And now we do something that we haven't done since episode one is we visit some of the victims of the explosion. Ludmilla has followed her husband, thanks to uh, an officious bureaucrat having a moment of mercy, up to Moscow, Moscow Hospital Number 6. Right. And she once again manages, from the force of her, you know, determination and her love, as you say, to get into to see him. And amazingly, they're fine. Yeah. Seemingly so. Seemingly so. Now, later on, uh, we're going to get an explanation for this. Right. But apparently there's something about radiation poisoning that gives you a sort of brief latency. Yeah. It's one of the cruelest things of this kind of severe acute radiation syndrome. The initial 
symptoms are very much like burn symptoms. Right. There's, you can see the skin reddening, there's swelling and vomiting and headaches. But then as those initial kind of what I would guess we would call like almost topical symptoms subside, you get a little bit of a break. Right. It seems like you're getting better, but you are not. And what's happening is the the damage that the radiation has done on a cellular level is taking a little bit of a while to manifest. Right. When it begins to manifest, then things get very, very bad very, very quickly. Right. And we're about to see that yeah, in, in very, very vivid ways. Yeah. Pretty soon you're going to introduce what is going to happen to them, which is another bit of of writing to, to set up the audience in an effective way, if, if a dreading way. I want to start, though, with something that isn't in the episode. In the script, you started the episode with Dyatlov. Yeah. Who we last saw in the reactor room, the, the, the guy who more than anyone seemingly was responsible for the accident, the guy who we know denied that the accident happened. He ordered his men to their deaths. Right. And we see him in the hospital in this deleted scene, but not alone. He has a vision of his son. Right. So Dyatlov had a son who died of leukemia around the age of 10. The details are a little skimpy, but we know at least that much. We also know that Dyatlov uh, at the time was working at a naval station near Siberia, helping construct nuclear submarines. So he was working on the, the nuclear generators inside of submarines, and there was an accident. Right which he was cleared of wrongdoing, but he was involved. And he received, by the way, in that accident, allegedly a near-fatal dose of radiation, and yet survived. His son, however, shortly thereafter, apparently got leukemia and died. Right. The question is, are these two things related? Right. So one possibility is that the clothing that Dyatlov was wearing that he took home, any kind of contamination therein, may have actually led to his own son's death. This was a storyline that I intended to include, but as it turned out, it was too far afield of what ultimately we all felt was the immediacy of the story we were telling. Right. That to flash back in time or to have any kind of hallucinatory vision seemed a little bit more out of the world of a normal fictional television series and less in our world. We right. were so engrossed in the real that it just kind of threw us out of our rhythm. Yeah. So we ended up removing it. But um, Paul Ritter, who plays Yachtlove, did a, a wonderful job. And it's sort of a shame. So hopefully people will get to see those scenes once someday. There was also, again, referring to something that didn't make the final version of the show, and I'll be vague about it. There's a scene later on, as scripted, in which Dyatlov is asked about his son. Yeah. And the character suggests that his attitude toward the accident, his refusal to take responsibility, to accept that it was happening, in fact, his arrogance in, in what he did to cause the accident, which will be revealed later, is related to the death of his son. Uh, I, I believe as if like he needed to master radiation or right. something. And that's not there anymore. Right. My feeling about that scene, which nobody will ever see, at least not in this version, <laughs> is that it's good that you cut it mm. because I was like, oh, backstory. Mm -hmm. We don't need backstory. As it turned out, we didn't need backstory. Yeah. And it is, um, it's supposition. It's a bit of, of yeah. sort of armchair psychology going on there, which also I think left us a little uncomfortable. 
But one thing that was true about Dyatlov, at least as people described him, uh, he was an incredibly unpleasant guy from all accounts. Yeah. Very stubborn, very stubborn. And also did have a certain kind of arrogance in regard to radiation. The way electricians sort of, you know, don't mind being shocked and, and sometimes will play around with things because they're used to it. He felt like he had taken the worst that radiation can give. It's it's not that bad. Yeah. It's overrated. And he can he's really in charge of the atom, not the other way around. There right. was something about that to him. Was it connected to what happened with the sun? That that is armchair psychology. And I agree with you. I think it it you know, obviously I agree because we look at it, but, <laughs> yeah. but it, it was just sort of out of the rhythm of what we were trying to do. Yeah. And one of the reasons I commend that choice is only because I think one of the aspects of this television series that I admire so much is that stuff happened for no good reason. Yeah. And people behaved in ways that made no sense, except in the exigencies of the moment. What's interesting is that this moment, as we start episode three, things seem okay. The immediate crisis with the thermal explosion has been solved thanks to the courage of the divers. The survivors of the explosion up in the hospital seem fine. Everything's great, it seems. There was even, I believe, a parade sequence that you had early in this episode that they were going out and having parades. In fact, the bureaucrat who treated uh, Emily Watson so badly in a moment of bravery in this deleted scene goes out and joins this parade outside X miles away from the radiation plume. Correct. They are, and the Soviet Union in general always wanted to be business as usual. That was their favorite thing to do no matter what was going on. And so they were business as usual in this as hard as they could. Gorbachev in this episode seems, I think, uh, a bit taken aback by the suggestion that this is not going to end anytime soon. And I understand that to some extent, that that the people in charge of the government through what they thought were remarkable resources, I mean, thousands of helicopter sorties and boron and sand and lead and lives, counting lives. And so great, let fix it. And it's not going to be fixed for a long time. And the first animation of that, or at least direct evidence of that is is Legasov's conversation about the effects of radiation sickness. And the cellular damage begins to manifest. The bone marrow dies. The immune system fails. The organs and soft tissue begin to decompose. The arteries and veins spill open like sieves to the point where you can't even administer morphine for the pain, which is unimaginable. Within three days to three weeks, you're dead. Let's pause for a second and talk about the decision-making process that you and the other producers had about how much of this you were going to show. Yeah. Well, for us, and and Johan, I think, certainly is included in this as well, our director, Johan Rank, if you are going to limit yourself in many ways by eschewing a lot of the usual dramatic tricks yeah. and sticking to the real as much as you can, yeah. then when there is an aspect of the real that is brutal and extreme, you need to show it too. It was important to me that people understood what was happening to these men because they suffered in terrible ways. And these were not random people suffering. These were heroes. They were saving lives. And in doing so, they put themselves in the line of fire 
And this is a fire that doesn't kill you quickly. It kills you slowly and it kills you in an excruciating manner. So Daniel Parker, the head of our makeup department, he really did the primary research on what this does and came up, I think he had at one point, like seven different stages. And of course, depending on who you were and how close you were and how long you were there, the stages were different. But then we also read through a lot of accounts. Um, Ludmilla Ignatenko's account of what her husband looked like was very influential on what we did. And we just felt that it was important to show it because it is horrifying. And the last thing that I want the show to do is to scare people about nuclear power. This is right. not a, a polemic about nuclear power. However, it's about respecting it yeah. for what it can do, because what it can do is, is, is savage. And the love story that we're telling between Ludmilla and her husband, I think only makes sense in the context of what is happening to him in front of her eyes. Right. Which is absolutely horrifying. Yeah. And, and there's a scene later on in which she grips his hand, which is moving not only because of the condition of his hand, but because of her courage in doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Because these guys were all radioactive in addition to dying in horrible pain. And in this sense, this is another one of those areas where I agree with you. The, there is no why you can say, well, why did she do that? She was told not, not to, to do, do that. Yeah. Well, because she loved him, but also she's telling herself a story too, I think in yeah. that moment, which yeah. is, it'll be okay. Right. And her, her recklessness in, again, skipping ahead a bit, her recklessness in going in to see him when she is pregnant, when yeah. she has been told, you're not pregnant, are you? Right. Is that something you had to stop and think about in terms of her attitude? Is she in denial? Oh, nothing, nothing bad will happen. What are they talking about? Does she not she, know? She did it. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. She did. She tells that story. The way she tells that story is what the doctor asked her was, do you have children? And she lied and said, yes, I have two. And she lied in that moment because she understood the implication of the question was, if you don't have children, this could prevent you, you from having children. Right. Or God forbid, if you're pregnant right now, affect the baby. And so she lied so that the doctor would think, well, she's got two, so it's okay. Go on ahead. Right. Do you think that she may not have understood the danger she was putting her baby in at that moment? I don't think she understood. Yeah. I think that she felt that it would be okay. And the truth of the matter is I don't blame her at all because there wasn't a lot of awareness about what radiation was and how it could harm you. And also, they let her do it. Yeah. In a sense, she was sort of relying on the authority. If an authority says, listen, you're not really supposed to go in there, but you can, mm -hmm. but for like 30 minutes. Well, how bad could it be? And they're going in there. Yeah. They're doing it all. And of course, a lot of those people did have to deal with the impact of that as well. Sure. Let's go back for a moment to Chernobyl. Uh, one of my favorite scenes, the coal miner scene, right. <laughs> which begins with the telling of a Soviet joke. We used to hear those all the time back in the day. <laughs> yeah. Here's here's What's as big as a house, burns 20 liters of fuel every hour, puts out a shitload of smoke and noise, and cuts an apple into three pieces. A Soviet machine made to cut apples into four pieces! <laughs> These coal miners were brought to Chernobyl to do this project, which will be described to us and to them. This is the second time that people have been, Soviet people have been enlisted to go and work on this problem at great risk to themselves. Right. And they go. And they go. And in this case, it wasn't like 
the miners were what we think of as docile Soviet workers. Miners were tough. Yeah. Um, we, we got some really interesting research. We had a wonderful researcher named Mimi Munson, which is a great name, Mimi Munson. And she found this really fascinating article about miners in the Soviet Union and how they occupied a certain kind of privileged position. By the way, this is one of the reasons why the Soviet Union was so obsessed with building large nuclear reactors. The demand for energy was massive, and most of the energy produced came from coal. So the coal miners had a certain leverage right. over the nation. And uh, Mikhail Gorbachev himself said that the, the coal miners were, was sort of scared him. So they were tough. Right. And they chose uh, willingly to do this again, in part because of a general sense of honor and community. And when someone comes to you and says, listen, there's going to be a, a permanent disaster unless you do this. You do it. Yeah. So miners from Tula, which is in Russia, miners from the Donbass, which is in Ukraine, and other places came to Chernobyl. Now, what were they doing? Yes. So I'm curious. When we ended episode two, right. we understood there was this risk of thermal explosion. Once that was eliminated, the understanding was that sooner or later, this fuel was going to melt down. So what's a, we talk about meltdown all the time. It just means basically that the uranium fuel is getting so hot and reactive that it begins to melt the cladding around it. And it turns into a kind of a lava and it will start to burn through things below it. There was a possibility that it would burn through the concrete pad underneath the structure. And if it did that, it would enter the water table and it would be a disaster a possibility. Right. So the miners were asked to dig this tunnel, get underneath that pad and excavate a room large enough to put in a heat exchanger, which is basically a fancy word for refrigeration unit right. that would use liquid nitrogen to cool the space above it and reduce the heat of yeah. the lava. All the liquid nitrogen in the Soviet Union. All of the liquid nitrogen in the Soviet Union. In fact, there, a little bit of a compression that we made was what happened to uh, Brukhanov and Famine, the two guys that were yeah. running the plant. We sort of imply that they've been arrested very quickly. In fact, it took quite a while for them to be arrested, but they were sidelined uh, pretty quickly as people started to understand that they were probably going to be held responsible. But in these early days, it was Brukhanov actually who was uh, ordered to find all this, the liquid nitrogen or he would be shot. They literally really? told him, we'll shoot you if you don't find us the liquid nitrogen. So these miners dug this tunnel, but they were digging it under the impression that it was absolutely necessary. And one of the weird things and the kind of brutal things about science, particularly nuclear science, is it's based on probabilities. Right. And so... At the end of this episode, Legasov says, I've ordered these people to do this. I have effectively killed a large number of them. And I'm doing it because there's a chance we might need it. And in fact, they didn't. So it, all of that effort and ultimately was, was unnecessary. Because it never melted down to the because concrete it, pad. It, it never melted through the concrete pad. So yeah. it never got to the groundwater. And that's that's a really... It's just a chilling fact that I would put myself in Legasov's shoes there and you start to realize the cruelty of the situation. You have no choice. The 50-50 chance that you're going to, you know, poison the, the Black Sea forever is not, it's not acceptable. Right. And so you now have to send 400 men and reportedly about one out of every four of them died. Of cancer or radiation-related radiation disease. Of radiation-related disease. Yeah, but of course, it is important that they went because it gave us what is 
important for every HBO show, an unnecessary nude scene. Yes, well, I think actually necessary. <laughs> yes, in this case. I'm sorry, let me say that again. <laughs> it gave us what every HBO production must have is a gratuitous nudity scene, yes. which is important. Is that real? Did they actually like take yes. off their clothes and dig naked? Yes, there were, there were some varying accounts of how much clothing got taken off, but more than one said that they took it all off. And for the exact reason that we state in the show, it was brutally hot. You know, we're talking temperatures of, I think we say 50 degrees Celsius. So Americans are going to be confused, but it's around 130 degrees. I mean, it was like a real oven in there and they couldn't use fans because right. it would stir up the dust. And in fact, in the old days, apparently it was somewhat customary for minors to work in the nude because of the heat right. involved. And the truth is that it really didn't expose them that much more because the danger at that point was, I mean, if you're going to be near radiation, your clothing is barely going to do anything. Well, the head miner makes that point to Lugasov. Is it really going to make that much of a difference? It's really not. Yeah. Um, and the biggest danger to them was what was in the air, which, you know, you could try and minimize dust, but you can't eliminate it entirely. There's a scene in which Lagasev does something he doesn't do a lot. He gets angry. Right. And he gets angry because of the 30-kilometer exclusion zone. Yeah, and of course we'll also need... Whatever you need, you have it. That should be clear yes. by now. Anything else? Uh, no, no, no. Thank yes, you. Yes, I'd like to address the 30-kilometer exclusion zone. Wait, wait, who, Professor Lagasev, is that you? W what exclusion zone? Minor details, General Secretary. Um, Premier Rishkov has, has determined that. If he determined, then he determined. Look, Professor Legasov, you are there for one reason only, do you understand, to make this stop. I don't want questions. I want to know when this will be over. If you mean when will Chernobyl be completely safe, the half-life of plutonium-239 is 24,000 years, so perhaps we should just say not within our lifetimes. And he seems to be angry because it's just so arbitrary. Yeah, it was an incredibly stupid decision. And it was, in fact, made by uh, Premier Rishkov, and no one can seem to understand why. Somewhere in a room far, far away from Chernobyl, this man decided that 30 kilometers would be a good amount of space to evacuate everyone from. So right. if you were in a 30-kilometer radius of Chernobyl, they would come and get you and take you away. And that made no sense whatsoever. Not only did it make no sense, not only did it have no basis in scientific fact, but it was effectively also condemning more people to, at best, shorten lifespans and disease. And here, I was using this essentially to help start to move Legasov's character a bit out of the realm of Soviet zealot. Right. Because you start, I think, in these circumstances, you start to lose your religion. I think both he and Sherbina start to lose their religion necessarily. It can't survive this. You can't keep believing in a system when you are living this nightmare that the system has created and the system keeps perpetuating it and making it worse. Right. Happily, they did then expand that zone quite dramatically. And is that the exclusion zone to this day? It is. Right. So, so, <laughs> so not only were they wrong about the immediate needs of the evacuation, they were wrong about an area that is now completely devoid of human life, except, of course, for those who are there to maintain it, to this day. Yeah, essentially what they landed on after the random 30-kilometer guess was a huge chunk of Ukraine and I believe a bit of Belarus as well. And it is that is the evacuation zone to this day. It is... Um, 
I mean, you can go in and out, but it is very carefully controlled. I've done it. You hand over your passport to soldiers. <laughs> you go through radiation how, checkpoints. I, we can talk about. I was going to save to this last episode, but we'll talk about it now. I guess. How does how does one arrange to to visit Chernobyl to get inside the exclusion zone? Well, they you know for me happily HBO and Sky sort of arranged our arrival, but we went through a, a service that does provide a kind of guided tour of the zone, and we also went to the power plant itself. Um, interestingly, the the gentlemen who took us through were children in Pripyat. Really? Um, they Yes, they were there. So you, it is a military checkpoint. You have um, soldiers, they are Ukrainian, and they have pretty big guns. And you hand over your passports. They have a list. They write everything down. Then they give you your document back. And you must go through a series of radiation checkpoints. They check you on your way in. Are you radioactive? Nope. Okay, good. Now you can go in. Then when you get closer or you go inside any of the larger facilities, check again. On your way out, they check you with the understanding if you ring a bell, you're not leaving. You're not leaving? <laughs> no, they have to decontaminate you. Oh. They're not going to let you leave. So there is a certain sense of a reasonable sense of seriousness to this entire production of getting in and out of the zone. And once you are in, you do get a sense very quickly of how massive it is because you're you're barely seeing any of it, and yet it is just extending to the horizon practically. Right. I mean, the exclusion zone, how big Correct. it is. Yeah. yeah. Again, this is a question I was saving for later, but I'll ask it now. You presumably visited Chernobyl after X number of years of researching, writing, rewriting, production. How did it feel to actually be there? I'm not a religious man, uh, uh, but I suppose that's about as religious as I'll ever feel because I had spent so much time living in that space in multiple areas of those spaces for so long and with the people in my mind for so long that to walk where they walked felt so strange. And also being under that same piece of sky, you start to feel a little closer in a sense um, to who they were. And I felt it probably the most when we were in the city of Chernobyl, which is, well, it's not really a city, it's a town of Chernobyl, which is different than Pripyat. It's actually further away, about 20 kilometers away from the power plant. And in the city of Chernobyl, there's a small building that's basically, it was the cultural center. That's where they would put on shows and, you know, songs about the Soviet Union and Lenin or whatever. And that is the room where they eventually held a trial that we will talk about in episode five. But in that moment, standing where Dyatlov and Famine and Brukhanov stood, it, it was it was very chilling. Yeah. Uh, even in a weird way, it was more moving to me than moving through the actual power plant itself. Really? The one thing, though, that I did feel walking through the power plant, a little bit of a better sense of how easy it would be to deny. Right. Because it's so big. You know, it's the weirdest thing. It's a little bit like if, you, if you're if you in a skyscraper, just like, this is solid. <laughs> yeah, it's not going to like tip over. Correct. You just feel safe within it. That's the, I don't know how else to put it. You feel safe. And in that sense, you can start to feel how people would say, it's, okay, for sure, it's not like the reactor blew up. Right. This is some other smaller problem. Right. How close can you get to the site of reactor four? Fairly close. I mean... It depends. If you're all geared up and you have a special dispensation, I think you can actually get pretty pretty far inside. Although now that it's covered and they're dismantling it, it may not be the case anymore. But we got as far as control room three 
and a pump room for reactor three, we had a safety officer, I guess, yeah. with it that we brought with us as part of the production. And he had a dosimeter running the whole time and it would, you know, occasionally beep. But, you know, I've learned now that radiation is everywhere. And, and so I don't freak out if I hear a beep or two. When we got into the pump room for uh, building three, which is now fairly close to. Yeah, because it was building four, building three, a huge extent of turbines. Correct. And then and two and one. one. Yeah. yeah. So three's right up against it. And when we got into the pump room of three, uh, the beep, 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 beep started going up. And, you know, our guide said, you know, we'll only be here for about, you know, a minute. Yeah. <laughs> and then we'll leave. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's something else. Wow. Back up at the hospital. The KGB appears, mm-hmm. and the research efforts are interrupted. Comrade, I know you've heard the stories about us. When I hear them, even I am shocked. But we are not what people say. Yes, people are following you. People are following those people. And you see that? They follow me. The KGB is a circle of accountability, nothing more. Again, because we're dealing with an invented character, I'm assuming you're representing a larger effort by the KGB to prevent this scientific investigation from going forward? Correct. I think that the KGB probably wasn't particularly concerned about the investigation. Reading the stories of scientists and some of the jeopardy that they put themselves in, the question was more, who are you going to tell this to? Right. We don't mind necessarily if you know something, but if you're going to talk about it, that's a problem. Right. And there were a number of scientists, one in particular, um, one source, he was put on trial. And he was he was put on trial and probably would have been convicted, except that at that point the Soviet Union collapsed. So it was he, like, he was put on trial for what? For talking too much in public about what happened? Essentially, yes, for challenging the, the narrative and, and questioning superiors and saying things he wasn't supposed to say. So they absolutely faced the same kind of normal repression of speech that everybody faced in the Soviet Union at the time. And the KGB was uh, everywhere. Um, and again, you know, random people would would sort of work hand in hand with the KGB. You know, the the woman who's the manager of the apartment building would, would be in touch with the KGB. It was understood. Yes. That's how it worked. The part of me who's able to stand aside and just admire clever writing really enjoyed that little speech by the KGB head. It's like, well, I'm being followed. It's a right. circle of accountability. <laughs> it's a circle it was of so, accountability. It's such a benign way to, to like to describe a surveillance state. We're all just keeping each other honest, don't you? I mean, they it, that's sort of the... The language, the nonsense language, I'm so fascinated by the creepy Orwellian nature of repressive bureaucrats and the way they speak. The turns of phrases they come up with are just shocking to me and chilling, probably because I, I love language. Sure. So to see it abused in that fashion is, so yeah, I just thought a circle of accountability sounded to me like the sort of thing a bureaucrat wishing to soft pedal the KGB would describe it as. It was amazing. And, you know, you always wonder how villains see themselves. Right. Because nobody ever wakes up and says, I'm going to do villainy today. Right. They say, I'm going to do this today for these very good reasons, as distorted as they may be. And I I thought that was, I don't know what a real head of the KGB might say, but maybe. Probably something like that. Probably something like that. We're back in the Kremlin conference room. And in a weird way, this is sort of the other version of 
Legasov's earlier speech about radiation poisoning. Correct. He says, this is what's going to happen to those men. Now he's describing to Gorbachev and the rest of the council, this is what we are going to need to do. Exactly. To describe what I believe is called historically the liquidation. That's correct. Yes. So you're exactly right. The The body of the Soviet Union has absorbed this initial shock. It has now had a little bit of a latency period. And, and here comes Legasov to explain, oh, no, 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 no. In fact, what happens now is this long, brutal war that's going to take place over hundreds of thousands of acres and involve hundreds of thousands of men and material and cost, and it must happen. And I think probably they thought, oh, good. Now, finally, we can just throw people at this thing. Right. There's a, a liquidator who described the entire effort. He said, we were thrown upon the reactor just like the sand. Yeah. And that's essentially what the Soviet Union did. They just went with volume. Why are they called liquidators? Right. So a liquidator was the all-purpose term that the Soviets used for the people that were sent to the zone to clean it up. These were people that were sent to do construction work, to chop down trees, to dig up dirt, to use bulldozers, and in some cases to uh, control the animal population. The word liquidator is a bit scarier than in the English language than it is in Russian. It comes essentially from the Russian word to eliminate. So they were there essentially as kind of disaster abatement uh, positions. But they refer to themselves as liquidators and have always been so. We go back to Moscow for a second after the scene in the Kremlin in which Legasov explains what will be needed and it is accepted. He goes and finds Kamyuk in the prison where she's been put. By the way, interesting production fact, this portrayal of two people in a KGB prison was shot in a KGB prison. This is a former KGB prison. This is uh, now a museum in Vilnius, Lithuania, that is dedicated to the many victims of the KGB. So as we moved through it, we were aware that there were, you know, the ghosts of history around us. They showed us these rooms. So that cell, that's where they would put you. The doors were quite heavy. They were padded on the inside in case you attempted to, I don't know, smash your head against it. There were little slots for food and such. But then there were some some grimmer rooms. There was one in particular where the floor sloped down. And so it was lower than the entrance to the door. And the idea there was that you would go into that room and they would fill it with water up to your knees or so so that you couldn't sleep. Right. You, you could sit or lie down because it's knees, water up to your knees. Correct. You could sit, but you couldn't sleep. If you fell down from exhaustion, you would drown. And so it was a kind of torture I would have never even contemplated. It was just awful. And right in the middle of a city. Right. Not, not some far-flung gulag thing, just right there in the middle of a city next to this building and that building is your KGB prison where people were tortured. And of course, then there was an execution room where they were put to death. Wow. You know, my writer's eye was like, oh, this is a scene. This is one of the very, very few places in this entire series where we stop to make a point. Right. Comrade. I think it's possible. I think it makes no sense. I, I think it's what I would say if I was trying to cover my own mistakes. But... I believe them. Then you should pursue it. We have to pursue every possibility, no matter how unlikely, no matter what or who is to blame. The point seems to be about the scientific community involved in Chernobyl and what they were doing and why they were doing it. The point is, yes, you're correct, about 
what they were doing there at the time, but it is also referring in no small way to how this all happened in the first place. We don't quite yet understand that. We will come to understand that. But this notion of what it means to be a scientist and what it means to pursue the truth is at the center of all of this. And there is a moment immediately following it where Komuk tells Lagasov, listen, this is what they said. They said that they did shut the reactor down, they pressed AZ-5, and then it exploded. And you see on Lagasov's face a very strange reaction, which Jared Harris performed to perfection. And it is a sense, we have at least, even if Komuk doesn't notice it, that this is not altogether shocking to him. Right. That it is stirring a memory of a thing. Right. And he is starting to suddenly realize something and it is making him feel a bit sick. And yet what he says to her after is, pursue this at all costs, no matter who is to blame. Right. And so there is the scientist saying, regardless of how I feel and regardless of how this turns out, the truth must be told. Right. There's obviously a character moment there for both of them, as you just described. But the series began with the words, what are the cost of lies? So it almost seems as if this is a counterpoint to that. Like, because lies, as we have seen and we'll see more of, are so devastating, the only response to that problem is to seek the truth no matter what. Yeah, it is... It is a character moment and it is a point moment, I think, in part because I root Legasov's character in this statement that lies have a cost. (laughs) As I was writing this, I remembered suddenly feeling antsy early on in episode three because there was this question in the back of my head that needed to be answered. But but we were so busy trying to not blow up, you know, half of Europe that we couldn't we didn't have time to ask it. And the question was simply, how did this happen? And now we begin to delve deeply into that question. And for me, it is both character and point because Legasov is on the front line of this in a very big way. And we'll see how that functions for him, particularly at the end of the next episode and into the final episode. The question of truth and truth seeking and truth telling is not as simple as it would seem, not for him and not for anyone in the Soviet Union. Right. And in much the same way that this episode is mainly about like the long-term costs of what has happened, the final episodes are the difficulty of executing that, both the, as we'll see, the liquidation and ultimately the search for truth, which has to be done. It has to be done, and it will not be done in a clean way. It will not be done in an efficient way. It will come in fits and starts. This is part of the reality of the way this disaster unfolded. It's also one of the reasons why it had to be told in a series of episodes like this over the course of five hours. You can't tell this in, say, as a movie because the story didn't work that way. And the reality of how this kind of unfolded is quite startling. But we know at least this much. The show has already put you on a clock. And the clock is there is an explosion and two years later, this man is dead. Right. So at this point here in the middle of the series, we are starting to see that fuse being lit. And we understand at this point it is going to lead ultimately to his death. And in that sense, although I'm dramatizing these moments, especially with Komuk, who's not was not, you know, an actual person, 
this is in fact what started to happen for Lagasa. This is where the fuse was lit and we're going to carry through a very important event that we actually happens in between episode four and five that we don't see, but we refer to. Right. There's a shot in this that, that stayed with me more than I think than almost any other shot in the whole series. And that is Emily Watson entering the hospital room of Akimov. We've seen Toptunov. The younger man with that wispy mustache right. who was so horribly burned, yes. who even in his hospital bed seems proud that he was the chief engineer right. in the control room at the age of 25. 25. But then she goes to visit Akimov, who was in charge of the room, the, I don't know his official title. Right. And he was the shift chief. The shift chief. Yeah. And we don't see him. Right. We see her face. Yeah. As she looks at him. Yeah. And she says later his face was gone. Yeah. So you made a decision not to show, not to uh, up the ante on the physical brutality of what had happened. Yeah. There is a fine line between real and impactful and purposeful and gratuitous. Yeah. And even within the editing of the, for instance, um, Vasily Ignatenko played by Adam Negatis, he, you know, we show the most of what this is, how this has ravaged him. Yeah, the firemen we're talking about. Correct. And, you know, one of the things in our initial cut, we we lingered quite a bit longer uh, on him. And Carrie Antholis, who um, was our executive at HBO, he said, you know, maybe not so much because it's starting to feel a little abusive. And he was right. You know, we kind of went back with fresh eyes and said, yeah, this actually is crossing the line. It seems now like we're almost, you know, enjoying it. We never wanted to be gratuitous or sensationalist in any way. We just wanted to show it was real. In the case of Akimov, we felt like we had done it. And to go further, I mean, Akimov, the description of Akimov when he died, his body was described as essentially blackened. His skin had gone all the way to like, um, almost like a charcoal color. He, it's terrible. And and we just didn't feel like to show that to people, I think at that point would have been gratuitous. So you never filmed it. You never put the actor in makeup and filmed it. We never put the actor in makeup. We never, we never wanted to. I, I mean, one of the reasons it was so effective and so memorable in addition to Emily Watson doing all the work we had seen Totonov and we've seen Vasily. Yeah. They looked terrible. Yeah. And the implication is that what Emily Watson is looking at at that moment is far worse. Yeah. And so what we imagine is bad enough. And sometimes <laughs> that's the strange nature of, of telling a story visually like this. Sometimes what you think you're being, um, I don't know, showing restraint, you're in a weird way, you're making it worse. Yeah. But again, this was a terrible thing that happened to these men. Awful. Uh, And two women, by the way, two women, um, two security guards at the plant were also exposed to massive amounts of radiation that night as well. And we kind of need to get that across. And and listen, at the end of this episode, the story that we're telling about how the bodies were handled is true. Right. They were put in bags. They were put in crates. Those crates were put in zinc-lined boxes. They were welded shut. They were put in a collective grave and then concrete was poured on them. Where is that grave, by the way? It's called... This is... Any Russian speaker is going to be very upset with my They gave up on me years ago. Don't worry about it. Mitininsko, Mitininsko Cemetery in Moscow. So it's, yeah. it's just outside of Moscow. And that's where they are now. And 
you know, just imagining a burial ceremony where a cement truck backs into place. It's just mind boggling. Yeah. There's a there's a strong implication that that people then knew who these people were, why they were being buried that way, mm-hmm. that that the secret was out yes. in a weird way. There was no more. I mean, these people were not being secreted away at night. Correct. The yeah. secret was out at this point. Yeah. Yes. And there was a certain amount of discrimination that went on, at least initially. People were terrified of, you know, the the people who had been moved out of Pripyat and maybe put into other communities. There was a sense of fear and dread of those people for some. And also there was, for a very long time, I think a sense that people like Akimov and Taptunov were to blame. Right. Which is, an, I think, a reasonable assumption people would make. Uh, whoever pressed the buttons in there obviously stank and blew it up and they did all this. And that's not entirely wrong. Right. But it's nowhere near entirely right. When this series is over, I hope that people understand that Akimov and Taptunov, in most ways, were really innocent and do not deserve blame for any of this. Right. And they certainly didn't deserve what ultimately happened to them. No one does. This has been episode three of the Chernobyl podcast, the only podcast that's even more depressing than the show. It is about. You can, of course, rate this podcast. You can subscribe to it. You can tell your friends about it. You can call them up in the middle of the night because you just can't stop thinking about it and then just, you know, annoy them with telling them all of your thoughts about this podcast. I highly recommend doing that. You can listen to this podcast via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, NPR One, or wherever else you choose to get your podcast. It's also available on YouTube and, for the first time ever, the HBO Go and HBO Now apps. We're finally dragging those apps into the podcast era. I'm Peter Sagal, and I've had the honor of talking to the show's writer, producer, and creator, Craig Mason. Thank you, Peter. We'll see you uh, next week to talk about episode four of Chernobyl.